0: I'm gonna talk about the prospects of of the United States and Iran finding themselves in an escalating confrontation to include potentially a military confrontation. And frankly, if it weren't for the fact that it's pretty difficult in the Trumpian news cycle to have a serious sustained conversation about anything, uh, and to to the degree we have any bandwidth for national security issues and war, we're talking a lot for good reasons about North Korea. If it weren't for those two things, we'd be talking a lot more about the prospects for a military conflict between the United States and Iran. And I really wanna talk about uh, two pathways to confrontation. One is uh, friction over the JCPOA, and that's a good segue from the previous uh, uh, talk. Uh, but the other is actually a number of friction points across the region uh, that I think are important for us uh, to keep uh, to keep in mind. All right. So first let's talk uh, briefly about uh, the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action. Um, Obviously, this isn't just an agreement negotiated between the United States and Iran. It was negotiated with the P5 plus 1 and the European Union and Iran and then codified in a U.N. Security Council resolution. So it's very much a multilateral international agreement. Whatever else one thinks of the agreement, it puts significant long-term constraints on the ability of Iran to produce weapons-grade uranium or weapons-grade plutonium and uh, puts upon Iran the most stringent verification and transparency mechanisms of any negotiated Uh, nonproliferation arrangement. Uh, It was hailed by the vast majority of nonproliferation and arms control experts, whatever you think of those uh, folks, uh, but not by, of course, uh, the uh, incoming president of the United States who during the campaign and during the transition and as president has repeatedly referred to this as a disastrous deal and most often as the worst deal ever, Um, alongside the TPP being the worst deal ever and NAFTA being the worst deal ever and the Paris Climate Accords being the worst deal ever. There are a lot of worst deals ever, uh, but this is right up there uh, for uh, the President uh, of the United States. What has he done about it? Uh, So Congress, largely to check President Obama and what they presume to be uh, a President Clinton coming in, passed some legislation in the summer of 2015 called INARA, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, which has, requires the President of the United States every 90 days to certify that Iran is complying with the agreement and that it remains in the national interest of the United States, uh, and every 120 days to waive the nuclear-related sanctions as called for under uh, the agreement. Trump hates both of these requirements because it requires him every 90 and 120 days in their off sequence to to basically sign something or be seen as validating Obama's Iran deal. All right? He hates this. He's told his advisors repeatedly he doesn't want to do it, and so last October, he decertified the Iran deal. He refused to acknowledge that the sanctions relief was proportional to the benefits we were getting uh, from the deal. That triggered a 60-day period where uh, Congress could have, uh, on an expedited uh, basis, reimposed nuclear-related sanctions. Congress decided not to do that. Uh, next up was a decision by Trump in January of this year as to whether to re-waive the sanctions. Uh, and the president basically said, I will do it, but this is the last time. That unless Congress and the Europeans work together to fix the deal, I will kill it. I'll walk away uh, from our obligations uh, under the deal. By the way, that, next, that, that clock is ticking. Uh, the next uh, sanctions waivers are due on May 12th, which, uh, for those of you who are pay attention to the Middle East, is also the day of the Iraqi elections. so it's going to be... <coughs> going to be awesome. And, and two days later, we open the uh, embassy in Jerusalem. Awesome. And the day after that, it's Ramadan. Awesome. Uh, so it's going to be a great time uh, in the Middle East in May. Uh, stay in and in, in, in around Palo Alto is my recommendation. Uh, in any case, what Trump wants Congress and Europe to fix are three big issues that he calls disastrous flaws with the agreement. Uh, One is the sunset provisions, which allows the constraints, especially on uranium enrichment, to start falling away at years 10 and 15 of the deal, and the criticism being that after that point, Iran can build an industrial-scale enrichment capacity that would shrink the breakout time for producing weapons-grade uranium to a very low level. The second thing they want to do is have a side agreement on ballistic missiles, especially long-range ballistic missiles, and the possibility of an intercontinental ballistic missile that could uh, deploy a nuclear weapon down uh, the road. And uh, the third is to ensure that the IAEA has true anytime-anywhere inspections to include on Iranian military facilities. Essentially, I think the Europeans and the State Department are trying to work around the president to do the bare minimum that would allow the president a face-saving measure to continue to waive the sanctions. It's going to be really tough for them to get there. I think they can probably get an agreement on missiles of some kind. Uh, They may be able to get an agreement that basically says the IAEA should be able to go wherever the IAEA wants, which they're allowed to do under the JCPOA anyway, and maybe that's a fudge factor that can get slipped by the president. I don't have much faith that the sunset issue will be addressed in a way, um, because essentially, Trump does not want to renegotiate with the Iranians. He doesn't want to reopen talks with the Chinese or the Russians. He wants to essentially have Congress Uh, and the U.S. administration and the Europeans agree on a fait accompli strategy that basically says, here's the new unilaterally negotiated uh, 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 addendums to the Iran agreement, and if you don't like it, we'll reimpose sanctions. It doesn't matter what the original agreement said. If if that's the play, I don't think the Europeans will ultimately end up going along with it uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to a sufficient degree. So that means we're approaching, I think, a train wreck on the JCPOA. I hope not, but I think we could be. Then the question is, what does Iran do? Iran is essentially signaled, I think for the reasons that you just heard, that they'll stick with the deal as long as they continue to get benefits of the deal, which largely means the rest of the B-5. So that's not good. All right. But it's not the only uh, potential uh, uh, set of pathways for uh, military confrontation. There's also a bunch of stuff going on in the Middle East uh, right now, a bunch of friction points where the United States and Iran find themselves backing different partners and proxy forces, and also themselves having uh, their own forces in very close proximity to one another in very confusing and complex uh, battle spaces. So let me mention four. There are more than four, but let me mention the four that keep me up uh, the, the, uh, the most at night. The first is, uh, the, first is the mid-Euphrates uh, River Valley. Um, this is, uh, anybody know who this guy is, Qasem Soleimani, head of the IRGC Quds Force, most powerful man in the Middle East. Um, he can do more with $5 billion than we, can, than we can do with $600 billion, apparently. But this is him hanging out with a number of uh, pro-Iranian uh, militia and advisors at the Abu Kamal crossing point uh, between Syria and, uh, and Iraq. Uh, essentially, about 98% of the territory that ISIS used to control in Iraq and Syria has now been taken back. The territorial caliphate has been smashed, but the 2%, of it is all here in the mid-Euphrates River Valley between Deir ez which is about here, and the Abu Kamal uh, border crossing. So there are a few thousand ISIS fighters spread throughout towns and villages here. Here's the rub. The United States and the coalition of Arabs and Kurds called the Syrian Democratic Forces control all of this, essentially everything uh, east of the Euphrates River. And the axis of Assad controls the other side of the river. And the problem is there's some strategic oil and gas resources on the wrong side of the river if you're Bashar al-Assad or if you're a Russian mercenary uh, 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 organization that could get a cut uh, of one of these uh, uh, these facilities if you seize it. And so there's a lot of – there's a scramble, in essence, to to seize the territory in this space, and it's bringing us and the Iranians uh, and the Russians and Assad's forces in very close proximity. So in the last year, you've had the Americans downing some Iranian drones – that were uh, probing uh, a US uh, backed forces down in this part of Syria. And then, of course, uh, three weeks ago, you had uh, Assad-backed uh, militia backed by um, uh, probably 100 Russian mercenaries or more uh, that made, uh, that crossed the river and tried to seize one of these facilities, and the Americans retaliated, killing maybe as many as 200 pro-Assad forces to include scores of Russian uh, mercenaries. And there's no reason why that can't happen again uh, but with Iranians uh, in, involved. Um, okay, so the mid-Euphrates River Valley. Is, uh, is a problem. Uh, the second area that's a problem is uh, southwestern Syria across the Golan frontier. And if you're wondering what this picture is, that's an image of the debris of the Israeli F-16 that was shot down uh, a, uh, a couple of weeks ago by Syrian anti-aircraft uh, uh, fire. So back to the map uh, here. Uh, essentially what the... Israelis and, and the Trump administration, I think for good reason, worry about is the degree to which Iran has been able to set up camp and deepen its tentacles all across Syria as a consequence of the support they provided Assad during the war. All of these red dots are Iranian facilities or bases at which Iran or its proxy forces have uh, forces inside of, of Syria. By the way, uh, the, Syrian, the drone uh, that was launched uh, uh, essentially uh, came from here. Um, so about uh, two weeks ago, uh, the Iranians sent a, a drone into Israeli airspace. According to reports, this was a reverse-engineered American drone. You might remember uh, in 2011, the Iranians captured a, da- a downed uh, American uh, drone. They apparently re- reverse-engineered the stealth drone, but it turns out not to have been very stealthy when they did it. Uh, and so uh, the Israelis shot the drone down. Uh, <laughs> The Israelis then retaliated by going all the way into central Syria and bombing the Iranian base from which the drone came there. As the F-16s were coming home, an Israeli jet was shot out of the sky by a Syrian air defense system in southern uh, Syria. It crashed in northern uh, Israel. The Israelis then retaliated by hitting about a dozen targets, about four air defense batteries from the Syrians and another four Iranian targets uh, 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 on the the Syrian side. Uh, So things got real. Uh, things only calmed down largely because Vladimir Putin called Bibi Netanyahu and told him to stand down and that they would work on, uh, on settling things down. And then I think because ultimately the Israelis and the Iranians both have reasons to be somewhat restrained. The Iranians because they don't want to drag the Israelis in and topple Assad at the very moment where it looks like Assad's going to win the civil war. And the Israelis because they don't want a war across their entor- entire northern front that would essentially paralyze the Israeli economy, given the hundreds of thousands of rockets uh, that Hezbollah and Lebanon and uh, Iranian forces in Syria can launch and hit infrastructure all throughout Israel. So there's a degree of mutually assured destruction, but it's very tense. And I don't know how many of you are at the Munich Security Conference, uh, but Bibi Netanyahu, who loves props, uh, did not bring a cartoon Wiley e. Coyote cartoon bomb this time, but he did bring a piece of the Iranian drone, right? And he held it up and he stared at Javad Zarif, he said, do you recognize this? You should. It's yours. Go back and tell your tyrant masters in Tehran, don't screw with us. Don't test Israel's resolve. And if you hit us again, we're not just going to hit you back in Syria. We'll hit Iran. All right. And Zarif said, It's a cartoonish circus. If they do anything, they'll live to regret it. Other senior Iranian officials have said as much. Uh, And so the stage is really set, I think, for the possibility that something the Israelis and the Trump administration fear very much, which is kind of a land bridge that goes all the way from Iran through Iraq across Syria this way and this way into Lebanon uh, and that the Iranians will build manufacturing facilities inside Syria for long-range precision strike uh, uh, missiles, that you have a scenario in which you could have a major confrontation at some point uh, between the Israelis and the Iranians inside Syria and probably Lebanon. And it's hard to imagine the Americans staying out of that, uh, especially uh, if with this uh, particular administration. All right. These aren't the only places where uh, stuff could get real, of course. Uh, the other place uh, that I think is worth keeping in mind is Iraq. So ISIS has essentially been defeated in Iraq. There are currently eight or 9,000 American soldiers, uh, airmen, uh, Marines, uh, uh, and sailors inside uh, Iraq. Um, that will probably be cut in half in the, in the coming months, but they are surrounded by about 100,000 Shia militia, about 30,000 of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of the IRGC uh, to include groups like Kataeb Hezbollah and Asable haq and uh, the Badr organization and, and some others. And there's a real possibility that, Two things could create uh, clashes between uh, the United States and Iranian forces inside Iraq. One is if something happens elsewhere in the region, especially in Syria, the Iranians could easily retaliate horizontally by going after American forces uh, inside Iraq. They haven't done that. Since the ISIS campaign kicked off, they used to do it all the time during the American occupation of Iraq following uh, the invasion. They could easily turn the rockets teams back on, the roadside bombs back on. The other thing that could trigger it is if the Trump administration pushes the Abadi government too hard, too fast on demobilizing the popular mobilization forces, the Shia militia and the Iranians may decide that they want to remind the Americans they have leverage, too. Right? And so... That's a problem, especially because if Americans start dying in Iraq at the hands of Iranians, then there's a real uh, incentive for the Trump administration to push back. And I'll give you a sobering example of that in a moment. Last but not least, uh, in terms of flashpoints, is Yemen. The brutal uh, civil war that's been going on there since late uh, late, uh, 2014 when the Houthis took over Sana'a and then the next couple months they took over the rest of the country. Uh, and the Saudis and the Emiratis have been prosecuting a pretty brutal air campaign uh, against uh, the Houthi-led government in Yemen. About 10,000 civilians at least have been killed. Uh, it's also a public health disaster. At least a million people are suffering from cholera. Seven million people are on the brink of famine. It's a really, really terrible uh, uh, situation. Uh, but it's also a situation in which the Iranians are probably providing the Houthis long-range strategic systems to include more accurate ballistic missiles, and you see Nikki Haley here standing at the Defense Intelligence Agency in front of a Iranian-provided, allegedly, uh, I believe it probably was Iranian-provided, uh, ballistic missile that the Houthis launched at the airport in Riyadh that either crashed or was shot down. It's unclear why it didn't hit uh, the target. But I think that there's a real possibility that if the, uh, uh, the Houthis continue to launch these systems and actually hit a populated area and kill a lot of people or a major piece of infrastructure in Saudi, uh, that you could see the Saudis themselves taking a shot at the Iranians with all of that uh, American kit they've bought uh, in recent years or the Trump administration uh, being uh, dragged in. All right. These are not the only flashpoints, there's a lot of flashpoints at sea, especially in the Strait of Hormuz, and the Babu Mandab and other sea lanes where the American Navy and the IRGC Navy operate in close uh, proximity, so stuff could happen. I wanna end though by saying that the things that keeps me up the most is, if you have all of these friction points, accidents happen, people can get killed, It's a compli- there's a lot of fog uh, of war and a lot of friction. And if stuff does start to go sideways between the United States and Iran, there are two things about the Trump administration that make a war a lot more likely than was the case under the Obama administration. The first one is Obama didn't want a war with Iran. Right? So let me give you uh, an, an example. In 2011, when I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense at the Middle East, as we were drawing down the rest of our forces, we had a really bad month uh, in the May-June uh, timeframe where we lost about a dozen soldiers from Iranian-backed rocket teams that were hitting our bases as our troops were leaving. We hadn't been taking casualties in months, and now suddenly we took a lot. And so Central Command came to Obama and said we have two options. Okay? Option one is that we launch Tomahawk cruise missiles into Iran to hit munitions factories, training facilities right on the other side of the Iran-Iraq border. Option two is that we authorize our special operations forces to go knock on some doors inside Iraq to go after the rocket teams. CENTCOM, was uh, recommending option one, tomahawks into Iran. Do you know who the CENTCOM commander was at the time? Mattis. Jim Mattis. Obama overruled Mattis uh, and decided to authorize special operations forces to go after the Iraqis uh, inside, uh, inside of Iraq. Um, you, look, there's a lot of disagreements within the Trump administration, but they are universally hawkish on Iran. And uh, if McMaster is replaced by somebody like John Bolton, it's going to get even worse. Um, But this is an area where I think some of the restraint that the adults in the room have had in the the Trump administration may fall away if blood is actually shed. Point number two, and then I'll sit down, is that there are are no sustained channels of communication between the high-level leadership in Washington and Tehran. Let me give you another example, all right? In mid-January of 2016, right before the Iran nuclear deal actually started to go into effect. You'll recall that about a dozen US sailors drifted into Iranian waters and were swept up by the IRGC Navy. John Kerry called Zarif half a dozen times in a 24-hour period, and those guys were returned without a shot fired. All right? Raise your hand if you think if the exact same incident happened tomorrow, it would end without a shot fired. There's a technical term for that, no frickin' way. (laughs) <laughs> All right. There are no channels of direct communication between the Trump administration and the Iranians at the highest level to calm down military tensions and prevent an incident from escalating. Instead, you have folks who are likely to engage manhood on both sides, and you also have domestic political incentives on both sides, uh, and especially as the investigation gets closer to Trump, frankly, um, I worry about some wag the dog uh, uh, concerns as well. So. I will end where I started, which is this is a space we should be very worried about. And the fact that we aren't more worried about it is a symptom not of that I'm, that I'm wrong, or maybe I'm wrong, but more because we're just distracted by a thousand other things that seem uh, uh, crazy and that we should worry about them. But this is a space we should watch very, very closely. Thank you.